Welcome to the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. How, how does your faith kind of play into it or does it play into it? What can be done about it? When I say the church, I'm talking about uh, evangelical white Christians and the black folk who attend their churches. Hello, welcome to the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I appreciate your taking the time to either view this on YouTube or Facebook or listen to us on Spotify or on iTunes. Uh, We are so very grateful whenever we have the opportunity to uh, come into your homes, into your offices, into your automobiles, and we always want to invite you to give us your feedback. You can reach out to me at Fred Jeff Smith at gmail.com. Fred Jeff Smith at gmail.com. We always appreciate your comments. I'm very happy today to welcome Judge Don Johnson to the Thrive Podcast. Judge, thank you so much for taking the time to come and share with us. It is more my pleasure than yours. Well, it's very kind of you. Tell me something. You you, you are a candidate for uh, the Court of Appeals. and I, I just want to start there. Okay. I was with you the other day, and you gave what I thought was a very interesting background to the whole structure of the Court of Appeals here in Louisiana. Could you share that with our audience? Tell us how that came about and, and what you and your brother, okay. uh, Ron Johnson, who's also a judge uh, here in Baton Rouge, for those who might not know, what, what you and your brother did to, to help make the system the way that it is right now. The idea of moving lawyers to the bench was uh, challenging for blacks here in this parish for for most of the time of, of my life. Um, and around 1980, um, Ernest Johnson and a group of uh, three other lawyers got together, and, and Judge Janice Clark was one of those lawyers, and they decided to file a lawsuit under the uh, Voting Rights Act mm-hmm. of 1965. And and basically, the Voting Rights Act said that if you had a concentration of minorities, a concentration of a group of blacks in your parish and county, and those minorities did not have an equal opportunity to get elected as judges, and the equal opportunity was based upon the fact that people voted on racial identification. Mm-hmm. So with that being a fact, a minority would always be generally voted out mm-hmm. because of the fact that the majority race represented and voted the majority. So when that was proven and was litigated all over the United States Supreme Court, the judicial system had to redraw or uh, permit blacks to get elected because we had proven that the system was racially uh, biased. Mm -hmm. So how do you remedy that? At that time, the 19th JDC, where where I said the 19th Judicial District Court, was elected Mm parish-wide, and it was by majority vote. So the 19th Judicial District settlement that we entered into after we won litigation divided the parish into three districts. Now, that's on the court where I sit now, the 19th. Yes, sir. And in each of those districts, 
a certain number of seats on the bench were assigned. Mm -hmm. And we knew what the probable outcome would be because the district lines were drawn with a majority-minority population or a majority-majority population. And then the allocation of the seats were given out. Well, that is the same thing that happened on the First Circuit. Right. Now, the, the First Circuit sits over the trial court, the 19th, many other courts, too, in, uh, in our parish, I mean, in our area. But nonetheless, we had to also decide how to elect a minority to the First Circuit. Mm -hmm. Now, we had four seats that were elected from Baton Rouge, East Baton Rouge Parish. So the idea was to take basically the area where this church sits away from the river and carve out an inner city district, which basically runs from LSU campus to the uh, Baker line, and, and then it goes out here toward Airline Highway. Okay. So we allocated one minority to that seat, and we allocated three seats to the other area in the parish, all of the other areas. This was based on the census, correct? Exactly. All right. The 1980 census. The 1980 census. Okay. So the 1980 census indicated that the population of our parish d demographically was about a third black and two-thirds white. So we allocated seats basically to uh, mimic that ratio. Okay. One seat for the minority, which Judge John Gidry sits in to this day. Yes, sir. And it's been 27 years since he's been there. Yes, sir. Now, interesting, though, he's, he's going to become chief judge in a month or so. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. So he's been sitting there, and we've been on the 19th, and the seats have remained that way, and the allocation has remained that way for the past 30 years. So, even though you, you said the, the 1980 census, there was a census in 90, there was a census in 2000, there was a census in 2010, and now there's been a census in 2020. So there have been four census uh, uh, done since then, yeah. but there's been no change in the allocation of seats as the black population in East Baton Rouge Parish has grown. Exactly. And what is the legal justification for that? The legal justification is that we don't, the state says, I don't have to change that because judges are not technically representatives. So there's no constitutional law the way it sits now that we can force. In other words, like the census that we do now for the school board, right. for, for the representatives, that's a required. Mm -hmm. Reapportionment or readjustment every 10 years. Right. Judicial officers are not under that constitutional rule. So we have to go to the legislature and basically ask permission to adjust the lines. And that's challenging when the, your representatives from your parish say to you, no, no, majority will not rule. Blacks became the majority in East Baton Rouge Parish, codified in the 2020 census. Yes. But it actually happened before that. Yes. We didn't have a number count. Right. So twice I uh, approached the legislature mm -hmm. and asked for an adjustment to reflect the, the, the map on the ground. Mm -hmm. And uh, despite that, we were told no. We, uh, we're not going to adjust. Even though you are the majority, this structural 
mark in the sand will still maintain an imbalance of three to one, even though you are the majority. Now, again, I, I don't want to be repetitive. What's the justification for that? I mean, you and I both know that it's wrong. Yeah, okay. I'm trying to understand what excuse is used in order to make the decision that they make. Power. <laughs> it's just that simple. Simple as that. Yeah. Power. Yeah. And when your appetite is such that you're, you're accustomed, uh, then it's difficult to share. Mm -hmm. And particularly share where you are either become a minority in the arrangement or you uh, are an equally balanced uh, arrangement. So it's challenging. And I've been trying to um, not uh, act, act out with uh, anger. I've been trying to be reasoned with it. But, mm -hmm. but it, it, here's what it amounts to. It makes me feel as if I'm three-fifths of an individual mm -hmm. because I'm the majority, but yet I have to accept minority status. And that's wrong. And I've explained uh, that that's wrong. But I, I, so, so I decided not to just explain it and just sit with it. And um, I decided to run. Well, what you're doing is really monumental yeah. when you put it in the context. And that's why I wanted you to share the okay. context of it. Okay. When I heard you share that story the other day, uh, it, it, it changed my thinking about this whole thing because what you're doing is is really, really powerful stuff. Mm -hmm. You are running in a district that was designed for you to lose. Yes. And yet, <laughs> in the primary, you finished first. Yes. So that, 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 that speaks volumes for uh, what people think about you mm -hmm. and your years on the 19th Judicial District Court and what you bring to this table. Uh, how do you feel about your election going forward? You, you're in a runoff. Uh, I think you finished with 45, 46 yeah, percent of the vote. You, 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 you finished very close to, yes. to, to what you needed the first time around. What do, what do you think the prospects are this second time around? I, I think it's all mostly turnout, but but here's what I I said in in, in the paper the other day. There's a perception that you cannot win. There's a belief system that it, your color in a majority system matters, mm -hmm. and it does. Let's recognize <clears throat> it has a factor, but. It, I have told myself, this is what was so, so unique about running in this race. Dr. King said it best. Before he could lead us, he had to get the slave out of himself. Mm -hmm. I don't even remember what he was saying. I do. All right. So yes. I had to get that mentality out of myself that mm -hmm. somehow I could not run in the majority district because everybody, we, we, we tend not to want to do that. Right. So I had to resist that temptation. So first, I had to internalize something in me mm -hmm. that it was nothing negative about my color. It was not going to be a negative factor. I was going to make it a positive factor. Yes, sir. So at first I had to do something to me. Then I had to let other people believe that it doesn't matter to them. And without leading with that vision, we stay where we are. Yes, sir. And our children, this is what we're teaching them. That, that, no, you stay up. That's not for you. No, you can't run here because they don't see us thinking ourselves outside of our zone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and that is something I've come to realize now. That's a defeatist kind of attitude. Yes. It's a limitation. 
we limit ourselves with that. And I appreciate <laughs> the, 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 the thinking that, that you have put into this. I appreciate the, the bravery, really, oh. that you have shown in running. But it shouldn't be like this. Right? <laughs> uh, I have been thoroughly frustrated with this whole reapportionment process. Okay. Uh, uh, I watched what they did with the school board uh, uh, reapportionment. Okay. I was I, when I say I watched it, I wasn't watching on television. <laughs> I was in the room when they did that, right. and it was bully politics one on one. We came in, they gave the public the opportunity to speak. We spoke for three or four hours. Some people spoke more than one time. And when they closed down the public speaking, there was a motion and a second, and they kept the lines the way that they wanted them to go. And then they went on about their business. The same thing happened at the Metro Council. Hmm. Uh, uh, so I, I watched that failure of reapportionment. Uh, the governor refused to veto the state legislature hmm. Uh, with regard to congressional seats and with regard to state legislative mm. seats. So we have lost, to my way of thinking, four times mm -hmm. <laughs> in this reapportionment uh, 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 season mm -hmm. around the 2020 census. And it is frustrating as a black man to... Uh, be told on the one hand to encourage people to go out and vote, and I and I am a I am a voter. All right. I vote for anything and everything. If it's dog catcher, I'm going to vote. But to be told go out and vote, and your vote matters, when in fact my vote has been diluted through unfair reapportionment practices. Exactly. So. What's your response? My response <laughs> is you constantly demand to be treated as an equal. If you don't, you innately accept that you're not a man. You're partial. And um, we speak truth to power. And if you don't do that, then you're, you're, the opposition never knows that you know what they're doing. You've got to tell them. And you've got to look them in the eye and say it. You know, that's what I did. I, I looked at him and I said, this is not right. And when you fail to do what's right, you traumatize and you, you, you harm. And that harm has to be remedied. It has to be dealt with. So the longer you keep uh, it the way it is, the longer you uh, extend the harm. And I, what, what I, I guess, and, and I've been asking myself, what is so frightening? What is so... Um, so concerning that, about the fact of black leadership or black elected officials that somehow we're feared. And, and I, I don't know if it's the fear of a factor of us uh, thinking that we're going to do unto them as, as has been done As has us. been done to us, yes. And we're not. No. We, that is not the nature of the people that we we are no, and and but that that's the only thing I can see. Why is uh, this desire for power? But I wrestle with it because we're judges. That's a distinct difference. I'm not a politician. Mm -hmm. I, I I don't sit there and, and deal deal with policies of politicians. I I sit and deal with justice. Mm -hmm. And and being a judge, you you you've got to deal with the facts. Mm -hmm. And you want justice to come from what you're dealing with. So it's difficult when, when you're challenging judges and you're challenging uh, them to, to ask them. So what I'm empowered to do is go to my judiciary and say, you should change this. 
if the legislature is going, you recognize that they're wrong, mm-hmm. then you need to speak up and say, judiciary will not accept this. This is just not right. And uh, uh, that's, that's something that I think our Supreme Court should step up and tell our legislature. You should redraw these lines. We're judges. We're not. This is something. That's the very reason why this rule of equal representation has not been placed upon us, because mm-hmm. we don't play that kind of uh, political uh, avenues of how to get elected. We, we're, we're tied in our tongues on what we could say in the public about our opponent. Uh, uh, we have limitations on what we could say on, on, on the radio, on the television, mm-hmm. on the commercials. Mm-hmm. We have a code of canon. We have a canon. Just like in your faith, you have a canonical canon that you, you sure. live by. Sure. We have that, too. So it's been, and I'm not sure if I answered your question, though. I may have tailed off here. So if you, if I'm not directly answering. No, you're doing fine. You're doing fine. Uh, Help our audience and me to understand why there are so many different levels of courts. Okay. You have juvenile courts. You have family courts. You have uh, city courts. You have district courts. Uh, you're currently running for the Court of Appeal, and then yeah. you have the state Supreme yes. Court. Help help us to understand okay. what all of these different levels of courts mean. All right. So the American system was set up where a federal system, but well, before the federal system was created, we only had states. If you remember, we didn't have a United States of mm-hmm. America. We didn't have a federal government. We only had 13 states. And those 13 states decided, and they had their own state systems, courts. They had a Supreme Court, and they had, sometimes they didn't have an intermediary court, court of appeal. They had a trial court, Supreme Court. But over time, the work was such that they felt that they should organize it. So it was an organizing uh, way of doing business. Mm-hmm. You would have the trial courts to hear the facts. And then if that trial court had errors, made errors, Either party could go to a reviewing court, a, a reviewing body, and that reviewing body of judges would review the work that was done below mm-hmm. and fix or correct mistakes or errors. So that's generally it's the Court of Appeal or Supreme Court above the Court of Appeal. So most of our states have organized justice in that framework. A trial court will hear both sides of the uh issue if it's a criminal case mm-hmm. they'll hear the plant they'll hear the state witness and the, and the defense witnesses and then a decision is made same thing in the civil matter mm-hmm. so that's the way it generally got organized on state level and then when we created the united states from those 13 states we developed a federal system that mimicked the state system trial level right. middle level so now you have a Federal court system, we have the United States court over on Florida Boulevard, mm-hmm. it's, it, it has a trial court, it has a trial judge. So we have two different structures, two different systems. But to get back to your answer about the types of courts in Baton Rouge, um, over time, the various courts in Louisiana came about because more and more litigation and more and more populations. So right now, we have about 33 district courts in Louisiana. This, where we said, is in the 19th right. judicial district. So if you took the boot, you'd see sec- about 33 district-level courts. And then above that level of, thir- of uh, 33 district courts, you have five courts of appeal. And those courts of appeal sits over the whole state, and they have regions. 
for and the court of appeal for Baton Rouge is called the First Circuit. Mm-hmm. And in the First Circuit, there are 16 parishes. So you have the Second Circuit, they have about 16 or 18 parishes. Third, have a number of parishes. Mm-hmm. So that's the way the court of appeal is divided. Mm-hmm. Then on top of the court of appeals in Louisiana, you have a Supreme Court. And it's seven just justices, they call them, that sits there. Right. And they are elected from regions throughout the state of Louisiana. Okay. And right now, we've only had one in the history of our state, uh, that one black that was elected, in the, and that's from the Orleans area. So we have one black sits on the court with that seven. And uh, in our area where we are, we have what's called an associate justice who is over our region. Mm-hmm. And, and cases go to him, but then he sets them on, on to the full, send them on to the full court. Now, in these Baton Rouge, we have the following courts. We have the state district court where I am, and we have other district courts. Mm-hmm. We have the family district court. We also have the juvenile district court. Right. Now, we did it that way because of the work. And um, now every court is different and throughout the state. For example, we go across the river, which you're familiar with. The judge over there on the 18th judicial district, their jurisdiction has all of these types under one judge. Juvenile, family, and what I do, civil and criminal, one judge has, well, not, it's, it's more than one judge over there, but that judge has authority over all of that type of subject matter. Okay. Because of the way it was created, when it was created. Baton Rouge, we decided to divide ours up, so we have specialized district courts. Mm-hmm. Juvenile, family, and district. And then, now those are state courts. All right. Then we have municipal courts. Municipal courts are not created by state legislative law, the legislature. They are created by municipalities to deal with minor matters, misdemeanors, and cases that are not beyond $25,000 or $50,000. So those cases go there to the municipal court. And the municipal courts are determined by the city government. For example, uh, our city court of Baton Rouge. We have five city court judges. Right. They're elected from the city of Baton Rouge, not from the parish. Not from the parish. Right. So the Metro Council has nothing to do with apportioning city court levels. Actually, they do. Okay. But the Metropolitan Council, if you remember, is both a— It's a consolidated government. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and so they they handle both city matters and parish yes, matters. That is correct. Okay, well, it's a convoluted yeah. system, yeah. And, and that's not to say that it doesn't work. Uh-huh. But for those who are not lawyers, yeah. I'm one. My sister tells me all the time, <laughs> "You don't know anything." I, I, I have plenty of opinions. She says most of them are wrong. Uh, but 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 I, I'm just curious as to how that whole thing yeah. got. Set up so the court of appeals, which mm-hmm. is the office that that you are seeking, yes, uh, is a review court. Yes, over all of o- the, o- over the everything. work that's being done by the lower courts. Yes, and so you deal more with matters of law, not matters of evidence. Is, actually, is that correct? Actually, no, actually, we deal with both at the trial level. Okay, we got, because we decide the facts. Okay, we, okay. Principally, we're a fact finding. Now, we have to, when we find the facts, we then apply the law to those facts. Okay. 
at one time, at one time, and I understand what you were saying, the appellate courts n did not deal with both issues. Mm -hmm. They let us decide the facts, and they decided we made a legal error. Right. But now they're with the changes, they review both fact and law. Okay. That changed over time. But, okay. yes, initially that that was the way it was. Okay. Uh, uh, but it's changed now. It's changed considerably. So they can review our factual decisions. But it's not the type of review that they just can automatically change. It has to be a serious uh, error, okay. not just any error. Uh, no evidence, and you found someone guilty, but that was no evidence. Mm -hmm. They will correct that. But if it was debatable, then they're not going our discretion governs, and we have discretion uh, with certain issues that come before us. Now, the, the gentleman that you are in the runoff okay. with, Hunter Green. Yes. Uh, he, too, has judicial experience or none? He has uh, seven years on the family court. Okay. Uh, okay. Seven years on the family court. Which Whereas you have 29 years <laughs> yes. on the 19th Judicial District Court. I have a, t a, total, a combined 29 years of judicial service. I served also, before I got to be a district judge, I served on city court. I was, I think I may have been the fourth black judge to serve on city court. And I was over there for about six and a half years, almost seven. And then I ran for the district court where mm -hmm. I've been for the past 23 years. Okay. So the combined is 29 years. This is my 30th year uh, starting next month. I understand. Uh, so I've, I, it's a long time. So you, you, you said earlier that. You're bound by a canon of ethics yes. that precludes you from saying certain things about uh, your opponent. Yeah. Uh, that, and you've also said that you're not political. Yes. So if you're not political <laughs> and if you are bound by a canon that says you cannot attack your opponent, what's the basis of your campaign thrust? My, my campaign thrust has been about, well, several areas. Number one. When I was uh, when there was no when there was no black on the court at all in this parish, I remember Judge Rosemary Pillow asked us because we were complaining about it. Well, when you all get a qualified black, we'll vote for him. That was the the the, the, the uh, statement I heard in the meeting, and I said, "Well, qualified. What does that mean? What does that mean?" We all had licenses. It's one of the most patronizing, insulting statements well, you could ever possibly make. When you're sitting across the table <laughs> and you're trying to get an agreement, you, you hear that kind of thing and you say, well, innately, that's what I've been fighting against all my life. Innately, I accepted that I, maybe I wasn't. Uh -huh. So I, I, I ran real fast and caught up, though. That's why I have the qualifications. Here's what I did, tried to do. I went to law school, LSU, got a law degree. I didn't stop there. I, I said, well, maybe that's not good enough. Mm -hmm. So I went and got three master's degrees. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's not good enough. And I went and got two PhD degrees. And this was not over online. This is sitting there yes, hours sir. and hours and writing and writing, right? Yes, sir. And, but you know what, Rev? I, I don't know. I asked myself, am I qualified now? Am I qualified? Because this unique in -in idea about yourself from grade school growing up, you, you, I wasn't feeling I was equal. I didn't believe it. I've, I've told people I was, but did I really believe it inside? Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't know. I, I remember this, and I, I don't know if this is is, is uh, the way I should put it, but first grade school, Miss Scott at Park Elementary, she came in class, and she said, students, you all are behind. And my brother and I sitting there, and we behind. 
the first day of class, first grade. So we got home, and my mom was a maid. She came home, and she saw me and Ron looking up to her, and I guess we had a war in our eyes. Mom, we're complaining. Why you? you why you? Why are we behind? And uh, she looked over at us. This was an amazing woman. She looked over and she said, uh, she didn't want to mislead us. One thing about my mom, she was take the truth, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> so she said, yeah, you are behind, but you didn't put yourself behind. Now run real fast and catch up. <laughs> Benjamin Mays. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. He, Did he, he say who that? runs the race, he who starts the race behind must run faster than the rest. <sighs> or else forever remain behind. It's, it's one of my favorite quotes. My father used to say it all the time, and, and it's been ingrained uh, in me. Uh, uh, but I, I, I listened to your niece uh, the other day, uh, Judge Ebony Johnson-Rose. Judge Ebony Johnson-Rose. Uh, Judge Ron Johnson. Judge Don Johnson. Judge Ebony Johnson-Rose. Uh, just making a point. Um, I, I heard her and you debating about how many degrees you actually had because you said it was six and she said, no, you, you miscounted. It's actually seven. So I was listening to you go through the, the degrees that you mentioned, and, 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 and I think I came up with seven just listening to you talk. So I think you're qualified. I think I'm qualified. I, I think you're qualified. Yeah. So the runoffs generally don't draw the same amount of attention yeah. that primaries uh, have. There are certain other things on the ballot mm -hmm. that might help with, uh, with turnout. Mm -hmm. uh, there are three constitutional amendments that are on the yes. ballot. Uh, there's some public service commission elections yeah. that are on the ballot along with your judgeship. What exactly are you doing, is your campaign doing, to help generate turnout for this runoff election? I, and, and, and I had thought, or I had assumed that a large segment of the community was connected to the election, mm -hmm. which was somewhat, uh, I guess, not accurate. So, because if the turnout had been greater, I wouldn't be in a runoff. No, you would have won. I would have won. So there's something that's disconnecting with a, the call or the, clear, the clearness of what message we have to deliver to get people who, who did not have the right to vote not long ago mm -hmm. to, to renew that belief in their power of their vote. Mm -hmm. So I asked myself, so how do we how do we get this message out? And 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 um, I remember listening to uh, a speaker, and I can't think of his name, but he he concluded this: it's almost sinful, it's almost sinful not to vote for a people of of ours because of what we went through, mm -hmm. because of what our elders struggled to fight to give us certainly, and to abandon that. Or not to understand the power in that. So I asked myself, how do we reconnect? So you asked me, well, how do I reconnect with mm -hmm. our people? Tell the truth. Mm -hmm. I think that if we tell them you have power and you're not using it, you need to renew your strength and renew your power so you can determine your fate. So you can determine what you want in your community. So you can determine if you, what streets are fixed. So you can determine what laws are enforced to the degree that they're enforced. I believe that with so much apathy, with so much disconnect, 
and our, our, our attention is being diverted, that we've lost the central idea of our, our own empowerment. So preach the gospel. And um, it would, I mean, we, you got you to tell them. You got to tell them. We got to plant the seeds and let them grow and nurture them. And I think that's the way we renew it. So my campaign is about getting around to everybody, everybody who has been abandoned or who feels they've been left behind, who's not um, warmly received, who's um, just lost. And I'm going to them. I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to tell them, look, give me a chance. Let, let me serve. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, um, that, I think it's important that we do it directly and that we show them that we are capable of leaders and we can do it. And if they um, if they believe in us, if they see us working and see us carrying out the job that we're supposed to do, I believe that the shift will occur. On this campaign trail, I'm running across people I hadn't seen in 40 years. Mm-hmm. And I'm reminded of what I was doing at the time. I'm reminded of um, the connections that we had. I'm reminded of the streets we, we couldn't cross because of the way we looked. We did dare not go. And they remind me of this. Don, you have an obligation mm-hmm. to go and change it. And so that's what I'm asking my parish to do. Let's go change it. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I'm counting on you. Mm-hmm. I'm counting on you to carry uh, so that when I go, then others can follow. Uh, somebody has to go, mm-hmm. and we have to go. And uh, I think that uh, that if I just tell them the truth and tell them to help me, that I believe that they'll come. They'll come. So that's what I'm hoping. You've been in judicial seats, as you said, for 29 yeah. years. Can you share with us what has been the greatest improvement over those 29 years? You came in. And you found this, and 29 years later, okay. it's this. What, 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 what has been the greatest shift? Well, the, the greatest shift I saw was the people that followed. Um, when I arrived at the city court many years ago, there were almost no staffs that, were, that looked like minorities. Uh, we had a few judges uh, on city court. I was one of two, when I, and I was there by myself at one time after Judge Tyson left and after Judge Kelly left and Judge Pitcher had left. Um, but there were an insignificant or a very small number of staffs that were minorities. Mm-hmm. So my idea was to help with that. Mm-hmm. That was one of the things that I was, I was going to demand and um, I was going to ask for. So as... I can look over 29 years and see the total composition of the makeup of the court staff. Mm-hmm. And that was very important to me because I wanted to make sure that opportunities existed for uh, people to get jobs and work. So that was one level of changes I, I, I saw. But the other level of change I saw was the, the transformation in our peers, uh, whereas the, there was a perception that we were not up to the job or we couldn't do the law, mm-hmm. or somehow our knowledge skill set was lower than than others. Uh, we changed that very quickly. Mm-hmm. So the perception now is has changed. Uh, there's an acknowledgement or acceptance that you are capable and you know the work and you can do the work. Mm-hmm. That's been another major shift in that. It's not all, all 100%, but largely it's there. And the other thing I, I see that's important is that 
We bring a perspective to the law of what justice is. Uh, we bring a perspective that uh, you apply law to the facts, but when you're sentencing, there are issues that you must recognize are bearing on the outcome of the person you're sentencing. Mm -hmm. So the one thing that I can say that I know now is the individual standing before the court in the criminal court is we're looking at underlying causes and this is why I have been innovative in the direction of moving the court. Um, I'm the recovery court judge. That was the drug court. Well, what is that? Well, it's a treatment mm -hmm. kind of approach. Rather than just convicting someone and sending them off to probation and letting them figure it out, knowing that the success rate is much lower if you just pass the ball to them and say, okay, stay out of trouble. Mm -hmm. No, you got to help them stay out of trouble. Mm -hmm. You've got to want to see them succeed, and you've got to invest the court in that success. So that's the new model. It's called, some call it therapeutic jurisprudence or problem-solving courts, mm -hmm. and I've invested a lot of time in that. So we have now the development of the last two models, four or five specialty courts at the 19th, and I'll go over what they are. I sit on the drug court. That mm -hmm. Now you accept responsibility that you're an addict, you're committing crimes. Your crimes are related to your addiction. So rather than just put you on probation, we're going to put you on probation with treatment, and we're going to help fund the treatment. So your recovery chance of getting away from the chemical is largely elevated, mm -hmm. and you succeed. So that's the drug court, treatment and probation. All right, recovery court. Then I also uh, started up what's called a pretrial recovery court. The drug court that we have, you have to be, a, you have to plead guilty to the crime, mm -hmm. and then if you complete the probation, the conviction can be set aside. But this this other court I started is a pre-plea court. You don't plead at all to the crime. You could just go directly into treatment and supervision. Mm -hmm. If you complete that, the district attorney never files a charge against you. That's the pretrial recovery court. So pretrial and then the recovery. Now. now does the district attorney have to assent to that? Does he have to give approval yes, to that? Yes. Okay. yes. And it's constitutionally based because he, his office under the Constitution has the absolute right and authority to decide uh, what case to prosecute and what case not to prosecute. That's what I thought. That's yes. what I was wondering about that. It's a, but it's a collaborative thing. Okay. See, now, whereas we were sitting across the table as an adversarial and the judge was in the middle, mm -hmm. you, the prosecutor, here's the defense attorney. And you all going at it adversarial. This model says if your client wants to get help, we will sit down as a team. And decide on the best way to, to administer that help. Exactly. Okay. It's a collaborative approach. It's not an adversarial approach. Gotcha. All right. So that's the model for, for the treatment court. So now we're bringing forth a, we have a reentry court. Well, what is that? That's where an individual has been sentenced seven years and he's got to go to prison. Or 10 years, he's got to go to prison. That's what the judges sentenced it to. There's an option for certain types of crimes that says this. If you agree to go into reentry court, we will assign a judge for you. And rather than serving that seven-year sentence or 10-year sentence at Angola or Hunch or Dixon, we will send you to that facility, that correctional facility. On that campus of the prison, you will be assigned a dormitory. In that dormitory are only people that are sent into that institution who intend to come out two years, in two years. 
And while you're housed there, you go to school every day. While you're housed there, you're going to get a skill set. When you come back, you will be able to walk out of prison into a job. Mm-hmm. It's all designed. The old model, Rev, was you came out of prison and everybody just welcomed you back. You went on, you tried to find a job, go get your license. This model is not that way. I understand. This is planned success, mm-hmm. planned to re-enter our community. That's that model. So we have the re-entry court, and um, one judge oversees them after they come back out, and they go into court once a month and be reviewed and keep up with their assignments. All right, two other types of courts are coming this year. The Veterans Treatment Court for our veterans, and that, that will be specifically for them who are in crime because of PTSD or issues related to substances. A lot mm-hmm. of our veterans are alcoholics are, are um, there using substances. So it's, that's a, it's a recovery court, but specialized for veterans. And then we just got approval to do what's called a domestic violence court. And that is one that I worked very hard on. Here's why. A lot of us are in love, and we um, challenge with our relation. Um, when we get into an argument, it leads to violence. It leads to contact. Mm-hmm. And that contact is going to result in one of us being arrested mm-hmm. or getting convicted. Mm-hmm. And then and then, if you're in love, <laughs> more, more than half the time, you're back together within the same week. So this trend is cycling through the courts. Right. <clears throat> so we designed a model that says this. If you're going to stay together, but you're at each other all the time, then why don't we give you some support and, and some treatment with respect to how to avoid that, mm-hmm. how to resolve that difference of opinion. If it's money, if, if you got alcohol involved, you got drugs involved, how are we going to help this family? Because they love it, but they just fight all the time. Mm-hmm. So we got to deal with that intentionally. You got to go to them. And, so that's the veteran, I mean, the, the domestic violence court. And it's designed to counsel, and both parties come in. Unlike the old system where you, if you're the perpetrator of the domestic violence, you got convicted and then you got sent to probation. Well, this model says if you're going to stay together, both of you need to come in. I understand. Same thing you do here yeah. to keep us together. Yeah. You can't just treat me if I'm the marital one. And, yeah. and you got to have us both here. Yeah. And so that's that model that we put forth. Can I ask you a question sure. about funding okay. for criminal courts? Okay. Uh, uh, not so much having to do with your campaign, but but you're a judge, so okay. I'm sure you see this. Mm-hmm. Prosecutors are far better funded mm-hmm. than public defenders. Yeah. Uh, uh, when Mr. Mitchell was the chief Michael. public mm-hmm. defender, uh, uh, he regularly complained. <laughs> that uh, his office was overwhelmed uh, with cases and severely underfunded. Uh, I glance at the parish budget from time to oh. time, and the district attorney's office is handsomely funded okay. as opposed to the public defender's office. Mm-hmm. Plus, the, the, the district attorney has programs Mm -hmm. uh, that they implement at a cost, Mm -hmm. uh, most of the money going to the DA's office to supplement what they don't get out of the budget. 
I know that Miranda says you have the right to an attorney, mm -hmm. and if you cannot afford one, one will be provided right. for you. <laughs> but if the attorney that's being provided has 300 other cases mm -hmm. and no money mm -hmm. with which to offer a proper defense, how can that be deemed fair? fair, fair. <sighs> what? Well, yes. As a judge, uh, I sit and I say, and I've had cases that come before me which, has, which have challenged the funding arrangement. Under the, the line of jurisprudence that our Supreme Court has set for us, if I appoint a case or assign a case to a public defender, the public defender now has to say to me, Judge Johnson, do you know how many cases I have? I cannot have any more. And we'd have to hold a hearing. I agree that there's an imbalance in funding. What, what we've been trying to do with this is have both sides equally funded so that the staff will be e equitable, equally uh, supported on funding, the, the lawyers would be. It's necessary. It's necessary. Otherwise, you, you create an, a structural imbalance in the ability and the capability of the defense team. And it's, it's plaguing us right now. Um, I'm certain that um, the public defender's office will continue to push to try to get fair funding, but I cannot remedy that. From the, the law will not allow me to just directly say I order the parish to provide funding for the public defender. Mm -hmm. I'm restricted from going into the parish's budget and taking the money and say no, you're going to allocate X. That's been tried and litigated, and we don't have that authority. So mm -hmm. I, I can't do it. So, but but does it not prohibit you from doing your job as a judge? It does. If you can see clearly, prosecute over here has almost everything at his mm -hmm. disposal to put forth an adequate pros uh, prosecution, but. The public defender has nothing at their disposal in order to provide an adequate defense. I, I, I get exactly what, what you're saying. And the public defender has to say to me, Judge Johnson, I don't have funding for an investigator. I don't have funding funding to get this analysis done. I don't have funding to send someone to go and talk to this witness. So I need Delay. I need time, and we—that's that's the general approach to it. Mm -hmm. Give you more time to develop and to defend yourself. Now, that may work against you if your client's in in jail mm -hmm. because your client is sitting there. Right. Uh, if your client's out, then it may work to your advantage because you don't really want to come in and try it anyway. So the idea is to try to balance it out. I just hope this is what, I, and I I just hope that our legislature would finally step up to the plate. And, and and quit talking about not funding adequately the public defender. And, and it's and my perception is this, and I, I'd like to be very, very candid with you. We campaign on being tough. That's the mm -hmm. model, all right? Mm -hmm. All right. Mm -hmm. We feel somehow safe. That's I, it. That's it. All right. So that so if you campaign as a DA, I'm tough on crime, you get funding, you get funding from the executive office. But a public defender is not campaigning with that model of toughness. I'm, I'm, I've, I've, uh, I've asked us to start, start talking about the new framework for tomorrow. That new framework is strong and smart. We must be strong, but we must be smart with our strength. I can be tough any day of the week. Mm -hmm. uh, when you have a hammer, you're, you're not required to use it. 
It's, it's only the the reluctance in using the hammer to get someone to change. Mm-hmm. You you should start with your toolbox with full of tools. And if you're not a fair uh, jurist, you don't reach for the hammer. That, that shouldn't be automatic. Mm-hmm. That should be your last tool mm-hmm. to hammer someone. So so I want to fill the toolbox up with an assortment of tools and find out which one works the best. And, and, and in that, it takes experience, but it also takes courage because you have to uh, defend against yourself, if, especially if people are saying you're soft on crime because I, a lot of our politicians, they, that is a label that they run from, and they, will, they run from that. I hear what you're saying, and, and I've heard that argument before, and I'm absolutely certain that you are right in what you're saying. But if our conservative brothers and sisters, because it's conservatives that don't want to give public defenders any money. Let's, okay. let's be clear about All that. Right. Ain't no liberal, ain't no progressive saying don't <laughs> give public defenders any money. It's conservatives right. who feel that way. All right. If conservatives believe in the Constitution of this state and of this nation, uh-huh. then constitutionally, uh-huh. they should want the courts mm-hmm. to be as balanced as yeah. possible, yeah. and balance implies proper funding to both sides. I agree. So, 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 so you wrestle with this. You're wrestling with this. You say, well, do you believe in the Constitution only when it favors you? Yes. That, I mean, that's right. That's only when you're the majority do you believe in law and order. Yeah. But now that I'm the majority, do you want law and order from me? I don't know. So it's 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 complicated, but it has to change. And and if we don't try and talk about it which is what we're doing today, if we shy away from it and don't want to tell the public exactly what the deal is, then I, I don't feel, I don't feel uh, as if I'm doing my job. And I wouldn't want someone to, I wouldn't want you to vote for me if you feel that somehow I'm going to sit around a table and compromise your liberty mm-hmm. or compromise your freedom. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. I'm going to go in and, and speak up. Now, I may get voted out, mm-hmm. but, the, but I, I'm going to say something mm-hmm. because uh, I have to. I have to. I have to say it for myself, too. Uh, uh, I have to say it for myself, but I, I, I do get what you're saying, Rev, and I, uh, I believe we have work to do. Are there too many lawyers in no. Louisiana? No. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. There are a lot of lawyers in Louisiana. Yeah, it's a lot of lawyers. Uh, uh, and sometimes I hear that uh, this state is over litigious. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that there are too many lawyers yeah. in in, okay. in Louisiana. Okay. Your, your opinion is that? Is, I, I don't think so. Um, and here's why I say that: we have four law schools in our state, and it's been that way for a long, long time. It was that way when I started out as a lawyer. Two in New Orleans, two in Baton Rouge. Mm-hmm. There's only one minority law school in this state, and that's Southern University. Southern University. There's only one. So we have Baton Rouge has. And we have three other campuses. Now, the good thing is you can go anywhere you want. Mm-hmm. You're not limited about which school you, you can go to. But I think that the mission of the schools are important because the, each school does have a different mission of what they're, what they're there for. I, and I, I, I'll share this with you. Um, one day I was so – I attended LSU Law School. My twin attended Southern Law yes, School. Yes, sir. All right. So we, we're talking about it. What's the mission of Southern Law Center? 
What's the mission of LSU Law Center? LSU says, well, basically at the time I read it, it said something like, we want to make the best lawyers in the state. And Southern says, we want to make lawyers to go out and do justice. What a purpose of justice. So it's a whole different approach to what the lawyer was getting licensed for. Mm -hmm. So you've got these groups of different missions out here uh, on different agendas. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's, it's necessary so that you'll have a composite of uh, jurisprudence and lawyers out here. So I don't think the number is high. I don't think it's too much. I think that with the different missions that uh, the schools have or the students that come from those schools, the ones that take that mission and go out and work hard and, and try to make law uh, work for people, make it work for people, not just work for politically mm -hmm. connected, powerful money interests, and uh, that's, that's so. I, I think we need lawyers to 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 come from different perspectives. Early voting begins on this Saturday. Uh, yeah, uh, as this is uh, being seen, which will be Monday, uh, the twenty eighth. So early voting will have started by the time the this is seen, and it runs until December third. December the third. December third. Any final thing you want to say yeah. to the to the voters as we close? I, I want to say to us as a people, renew our faith. Let's get back to where we were. Let's get back to believing in our power and our ability. Let's get back to doing what we know we need to do as a people. Let's carry forth the legacy of our elders. Let's go vote. And when we go vote, we will see a change in the, in the realness of what we're about, and we will quit being so apathetic because the outcomes will be different. Send the people to those duties and responsibilities that understand where you are and what you need to do. So I'm, I ask you to vote. If you don't vote for me, just go vote for somebody. Yes, sir. And, and, and it's, the perception is ended that you don't vote. You don't matter because you don't vote. And you talk about Black Lives Matter. You talk about you do not matter if you don't vote. You don't matter. So that, that's what I'd like to leave everybody with. First Circuit Court of Appeal candidate. Yes. Current 19th Judicial District Chief Judge. Oh, yes. Don Johnson. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and share with us on the Thrive Podcast. Thank you all for viewing. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back again next time.